Why did Jesus perform miracles? Have you ever thought about that? Why did Jesus perform miracles? At, at first glance, uh, we might say that Jesus worked miracles because there were needs that needed to be met. As Jesus traveled about and ministered, he saw people in need. So, so he performed miracles to meet people's needs. And we might be quick to think that because we've seen miracles meet people's needs, right? I mean, we've seen here in John's Gospel, Jesus turned water to wine. And why did he do that? Well, because they ran out, right, at the wedding feast. There was the healing of the official's son. Why did he heal him? Well, we would say because the official son was ill. Ill, It says he was near death. There was the healing of the paralytic who, who couldn't get down into the waters when the waters were stirred. Paralyzed for 38 years, so Jesus healed him. There were the loaves, there were the fishes that Jesus multiplied to feed the 5,000. Why? Because, well, because there were a lot of people and they were hungry and where were they going to go? There was no, you know, multitude of Mickey D's nearby, right? It wasn't long either after that when Jesus walked on water and he calmed the storm. And why did he calm the storm? Why did he do that? We would say he was there because he, he knew that the disciples were going to be afraid and he calmed the storm to, to calm their fears. We, we see him meeting needs with these miracles again and again. People's needs are met when Jesus performs miracles, right? But were the needs that Jesus met the primary reason for the miracle? Was that the, the, the root reason for the miracle? Is that, is that why Jesus did miracles? Simply because there were needs? Or is it possible there were, there were other reasons? And there are other reasons. Now, one reason for Jesus' miracles were for the purpose of authenticating who He is. Right? As He worked miracles, it authenticated Him as as. God incarnate as God in human flesh. And yet even that, I don't think, is the primary reason that Jesus performed miracles and, and helped people in need. There's another, maybe even more important reason. And I think it's this. Jesus' miracles were an important opportunity for Him and opened up doors of opportunity for Him to teach spiritual truths to communicate spiritual truth to, to spiritually blind eyes. That is, in fact, why He came to earth. If you think about it, Jesus came to earth to minister the truth. Did He come to perform miracles? No, the miracles are part of why He came. And He came to, to teach spiritual truth. He came to make Himself known so that sinners would be saved. Right? Now, we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of chapter 9. And if you brought your copy of God's Word with you, let's go there. Go to John chapter 9. And I want to look at the first 12 verses this morning. And in our text today, we find that Jesus' intent, and here's a miracle right as we open up chapter 9. When He makes a, a, a blind man see, causes a man born blind to see. He had never seen before, and Jesus gives him sight. And in the text today, we find that Jesus' intent in working the miracle seen here really does go far beyond giving sight to this man born blind. goes far beyond even authenticating who he is. His intent is to teach a spiritual truth. And actually, not just one spiritual truth, but several spiritual truths. And there are more than one here that we're going to see this morning. Let's remember 
Let's remember as we open God's Word this morning and always that we dare not miss the spiritual truths that God has given us. We can easily, easily, and I do this, easily get caught up in the details, right? And paying attention to this detail and that detail when what we really need are the spiritual truths intended to change our lives and change us for God's glory. So let's remember, we dare not miss the spiritual truths of God's Word. We need to take care. We not to get distracted by those details and miss the truth being taught. We need these truths. Do you agree with that? I think you do because you're here and you're, you haven't left yet. I'm preaching and you're listening, right? We need these truths. We need to see them. We need to believe them. We need to follow them. We need to be changed by the truths, the spiritual truths that inform us. They ought not just inform us. They ought to change us. You agree? I hope so. I mean, that's where, that's why we're here. So as we look at verses one to twelve this morning, let's watch for spiritual truth that will change us and will make us more like Christ, his faithful children. And let's start with verses one and two. As he passed by, this is Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? So here's Jesus out with the disciples, and we don't know exactly where they are or, or when this is, but we can assume that, that this is sometime after, obviously some time likely has passed from the close of chapter 8. Remember, at the close of chapter 8, we saw the, the end of chapter 8, these Jewish leaders are picking up stones to stone Jesus, and he just simply says he slips away, basically, right? They can't, they can't stone him because he slips away. And so this is likely sometime after that, but we don't know how long after this, but he and the disciples are out. And they're walking along, and apparently, according to verse 1, Jesus was the first to notice this man blind from birth. Now, the question the, the, the disciples ask is interesting. It's an interesting question because it reveals some of the, the, the beliefs that were commonly held at that time. And, and they say this, who sinned? And it's interesting, their first thought was, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This, think about the common belief that was held at that time was something evidently the disciples held to, was that suffering and death was always the result of someone's sin. So here's a man born blind. And apparently the disciples are of this same kind of thinking too, but there's a problem for them. They're starting to think about this and start to think about the things that they hear from Christ as he teaches, and they begin, you can almost wonder what they're, you can almost think about what they're thinking. They begin to ask this question. There's a problem for them because they asked Jesus for clarification about the sin issue, okay? Who sinned? This man or his parents? They're, they're thinking, I mean, what happened here? This seems pretty severe that this, this poor fellow would be blind his whole life, never have sight because of a sin of his. But wait a minute, he was born blind, so did he sin before he was blind? I mean, is that some people thought that that's possible? Is he, is he has possibly sinned before he was blind, before he was born? Or, but that doesn't make sense. So, so maybe it's his parents' fault. And 
But that doesn't make sense either. Why is this man suffering for some sin his parents committed? You see the problem <laughs> with this kind of thinking, this, this theological issue that they bring before Jesus and say, we need help with this. Now certainly, we need to back up a step and think. It's certainly it's true that at the root of all suffering, God's Word teaches this, that at the root of all suffering is what? It, it's sin, right? At the root of all suffering and death is sin. The Bible teaches us this when we, especially you read something like Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, right? Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Here's an important note I want to share with you from Warren Wearsby. He says, in the final analysis, all physical problems are the result of our fall in Adam for his disobedience brought sin and death into the world. But afterward, to blame a specific disability on a specific sin committed by specific persons is certainly beyond any man's ability or authority. Only God knows why babies are born with handicaps, and only God can turn those handicaps into something that will bring good to the people and glory to his name. Certainly both the man and his parents had at some time committed sin, but Jesus did not see their sin as the cause of the man's blindness. That's an important thought. I appreciate what Warren Wiersbe says there because that helps us. Jesus is, is going to teach a powerful truth here as a result of the question the disciples ask. An important spiritual truth here Jesus teaches that has to do with suffering and sin. Is all suffering, is all affliction the result of God's punishment for a particular sin? Is your suffering, is, is the death that comes on us, is it, is it all a result of a particular sin? That's what the disciples had assumed. That's what many at the time had assumed. But Jesus corrects that false idea and he makes it very clear there's actually a third option. Verses 3 through 5, look at them with me. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, uh-uh, it's neither. It's not him or his parents' sin. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming. When no one can work, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So here the disciples, they ask Jesus, an either-or question, and Jesus gives a neither answer, right? It's neither one of those. Now, we need to be careful here. There are consequences that we suffer because of our sinful choices, right? There are, and we gotta, we got to say this, there are consequences that we suffer because we make sinful choices. Think about this. There are babies born with birth defects and there are babies born with disabilities and sometimes those defects and disabilities are a a result of a parent's sinful choices. But not always. Not always. We also have to say this. God punishes sin. We know that, don't we? God takes sin very seriously. We see instances in the Bible when God punishes for sinful choices. So, We need to be careful that we not dismiss all suffering and say, well, this can't be happening because of some sin. It can't be. 
Some suffering is the result of sinful choices, and some suffering is the result of the fact that God does punish for sin and sinful choices. But we learn from Jesus here that not all suffering, not all affliction, is because God is punishing the sufferer for a particular sin. And certainly sinful choices and the sinful lifestyle of parents can have tragic results that can affect generations of of children, yes. But not all suffering and not all death is a result of someone's specific sin. The, The suffering of a child being punishment for the sins of the parents is not a biblical concept. Jesus makes that clear here when he says it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but... And that's that's an important break right there. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. So it wasn't this man's sin. It wasn't his parents' sin. It was for a far different reason than that. And let's also be careful here that we not not conclude that God caused this man's blindness from birth for the specific point in time We're not suggesting that either, that God said, look, you know, I'm going to send Jesus along at some point to heal this man, so I'm going to cause this man's blindness from birth. As commentator F.F. Bruce says, this does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that after many years his glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. To think so would, again, be an aspersion on the character of God. It does mean that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ and others, seeing this work of God, might turn to the true light of the world. To turn to Jesus. So here's the point. In everything, God has a purpose. In everything, God has a purpose. God always has a plan. And we can rest assured that God always has a plan. As Romans 8.28 instructs us as followers of Christ, we know that for, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose, right? And we take great hope in knowing this, that God, God is in control. He has a purpose. And yes, all things, even even the, the worst things that we can imagine, can work together for the good that God intends to do through those. And most notably, God's purpose in all things is always that the works of God might be displayed. Now, why? Why might that be important? That the works of God might be displayed. Well, so that people will see the works of God and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, and be saved from their sin, their most desperate need. You see, that we might be given spiritual sight, that we might see Jesus, the light of the world, is why Jesus came and why God works all things together for good. Ultimately, the point, the purpose is so that that we might see the works of God displayed and glorify Him and obey Him and give Him our allegiance. As Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider... That suffering, the sufferings of this, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Not our glory, God's glory, as we depend upon Him, right? 
And so Paul says, look, I'm suffering, but the suffering, I, I see the suffering as worth it all if God gets glory in the way I respond. And why reveal God's glory in Christ? Well, that we might believe in Him, right? Well, think of Jesus' suffering for a moment. Did Jesus suffer because He had sinned? Is there some specific sin that Jesus had committed that, that God said, okay, you blew it now. You're going to the cross. Absolutely not, right? That is not true, right? No, he, he was without sin. Praise God. God had another reason than for allowing His Son, He sent as a God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, to suffer. He had another purpose. He wanted the world through Christ to see the light of life, Right? He wanted the world to see the light of life in Jesus Christ. He wanted to forgive sinners of their sin, and He wanted to save them through His Son's sacrifice. There's another spiritual truth pointed to here, and it's that for God's children, there there is work to do. There's work to do. There's an important task in front of us as as God's children. It's work that Jesus is doing as He obediently carries out the Father's work here on earth. But note that it's not only the work of Jesus, not only His work. He says in, in verse 4, we, you see that? Look at verse 4. We must work the works of Him who sent me. We must work the works. And that word we reveals that it's not just Jesus' task, is it? Yes, Jesus was sent to do the work that God the Father gave him, but but it's also a work in which the children of God joins the Son of God. We join Jesus Christ in this task to work the works for which God the Father sent Christ. And there's that little word must. In verse 4, the word must. It kind of places some proper urgency on the task, doesn't it? This must occur. We must Do this work for which I was sent, says Jesus Christ. Why? Jesus says, because night is coming. Night is coming. Is it easy to work in the dark or hard to work in the dark? (laughs) It's hard to work in the dark, isn't it? You guys get underneath your vehicle, even in the daylight it's hard to see, so you take a light with you, right? I do too, but it doesn't do me any good. It doesn't have anything to do with light or failure for light, right? In verse 4 it says must. It places some proper urgency on this task for us. Why the urgency? Because Jesus says night is coming when no one can work. What's the night he's talking about? I think it's twofold. I think it's twofold. As long as I am in the world, he says, I am the light of the world. Here's the first way. It's hard to work in the dark. I think for Jesus, this urgency is twofold since he says we must work the works. First, his time is limited, isn't it? We know that he doesn't have much more time as God incarnate, that is, God in human flesh. It won't be long after this that he's crucified and he dies and then raises from the dead and then ascends in the glory. And then he, and then he sends his Holy Spirit and he says, go and tell, right? So this is this first, the first way that time is limited is because night is coming. And I think Jesus means that my time is short because he says, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He, he knows his days are limited. They're numbered. 
And he must be about his father's business. He must be doing the work for which God the Father sent him. Second is this, uh, time is limited for people. You realize that? Time is limited not only for us who are giving the message, but time is limited for the message receiver. For those who hear the gospel, we've seen this earlier in Jesus in his declarations of truth to unbelievers. Some see Jesus for who he is, don't they? And some believe in him. They see him as the light of the world as he reveals the truth to them. And they see their need for Christ. And they believe in him. They put their faith in him. They turn from sin and to faith in Christ. Some believe. And we praise God for that. They're saved. Others, though, others hear the same truths. They hear the same message. They have the same light giver, Jesus Christ, giving them the message. We've seen them here in in John's Gospel. But what do they do? Some reject. And when they reject the truth, they harden their hearts against the truth. It's not that they had never heard the truth or seen the truth or had God reveal Himself to them in, in creation, right? We're without excuse. But their time is limited because there will come a day when they no longer have an opportunity to repent and turn and believe. They've hardened their hearts and they've refused to believe in Jesus. So I think it's the, this twofold. Jesus says, my time is limited and people have a limited amount of time to receive my truth and receive me. And we begin to see what needs to happen in the heart of a sinner when we see what happens next in the story, don't we? We'll see Jesus here in verses 6 and 7. He gives instruction to this man. And note what he does. Look at verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and came back seeing. What did the man do? We would simply say one word. He obeyed. (laughs) He did what he was told. The man did as Jesus instructed. He went to the pool of Siloam, and he washed away the mud. And John says the man came back seeing. Now, just a note to the young people here. When your mother tells you not to spit, okay, do not come back here and say, well, Jesus spit. All right, because what she's going to want from you next is for you to give someone sight. Okay, so um, don't even go there to say yes, ma'am, and stop spitting. Okay, now here's the point. Right, the the man obeyed. Right, he obeyed. It's interesting here too that John mentions the meaning of the word Siloam. It means sent, and it was named such because the water that that was gathered there in a pool was sent there. By a channel. So there was a channel that sent the water to that pool. So they called that pool sent. It's interesting because the name of the pool points to another spiritual truth. Think about the one who sent him to the pool. He himself, Jesus Christ, was what? He was sent by God the Father. Now it's likely John John doesn't mention that spiritual truth, but I think he's pointing to it by just saying, hey, and by the way, the name of the pool, it means sent. Repeatedly, we've heard Jesus here in John's Gospel say that he had been sent by God, right? He keeps pointing back to the Father. I'm not about my business. I'm about the Father's business. I'm obeying. 
I've been sent. Jesus is the one sent by God to save sinners. And now Jesus, the one sent by God, Jesus, the giver of life, Jesus, the light of the world, right? who opens darkened hearts, blinded hearts, blinded, blinded by sin to the truth, he sends this man born blind and makes use of the pool called sent and gives sight to the man born blind. Now imagine with me, if you can, the foolishness of this man if he had said, what? Wait, wait, wait. I heard you spit. Are you meant that that stuff you just put on my eyes? Did you spit and make mud and put it on my eyes? I've been blind since birth. And what are you doing? Get that stuff off of me. Did you imagine how we would say that was fool? That would be really foolish. He didn't do that, did he? He obeyed. He went. He washed. But some people do that, right? They hear the truth, and we and we say. How foolish. This is the life-giving, life-changing truth. This will change the direction of, of every day from here on out if you will give Jesus your heart, your whole self, your whole being. Commit yourself to Him and turn from sin and believe in Him for salvation. We say, how foolish to not believe. And yet there are people who say, get that mud off of me. Right? This guy did not do that, thankfully. But some people do do that. If this man failed to follow Jesus' instruction, he likely would have remained blind. I think Jesus wanted him to go and wash where he told him to wash. But he followed this instruction. He obeyed. And he gained his sight. Now there's no mention of it, but can you imagine the excitement of this man as he... Washed away the spit made mud in the pool of Siloam? What do you think he saw first? I think he saw first his own face. That might have scared him. You know, it would scare me. It would scare some of you too. Just, I'm just saying to, to see your face, you know, that, sorry, I'm, I was trying to be funny. Right? I mean, he probably saw himself first and then behind him he might have seen light and clouds in the, in the water. And then he looks. And he's looking around, he's seeing other people's faces, and he's seeing forms of people, and he's seeing shapes of buildings probably, and, and, and all kinds of things, and, and he sees the water he's never seen before, and he sees people he's never seen before, and he, he sees light. Think about it. Think about it. Jesus, the light giver, gives sight to the blind, and he gives sight to the spiritually blind. And this man sees the, the light of day for the first time, and he begins seeing colors, and he has got to be ecstatic, right? Excited. And I think in that is a, is a beautiful illustration of what it is to have spiritual sight after having been engulfed by the darkness of sin. Some of you can re- well remember the day you came to Christ. And though you did not have all spiritual truth to reveal to you on that day, you had enough to say, this is unbelievable that I can now see spiritually. That I realize even now, even more than I did before, how wretched I was as a sinner without Christ. What a beautiful illustration to have spiritual sight after after having been blinded by sin all your life. And it's another spiritual truth illustrated by Jesus' miracle. We see it in verse 5 when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. We've heard Jesus say this again uh, more than once. 
He's proclaimed this truth before. It's the truth that Jesus gives spiritual sight to people blinded by sin. But you know that some people are more interested in the details than they are the deliverer, right? They're they're more concerned with the details of of what's going on around them or maybe about the truth they're being told. They're more concerned about the details than they are with who it is who delivers from the darkness to the light. They aren't seeing what's most important to them. We see it going on here in in the verses that follow. Look at verse 8. His neighbors aren't seeing the most important thing at first. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, and, and I'm, you know, we can only assume, but, but he was probably ecstatic and ran back telling people, I can see, I can see, I can see. And, there, and the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some, says, some said, it is he. Others said, no, but, but he is like him. It kind of looks like him, but that's not him. It can't be him. He, he kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, then, then how were your eyes opened? They want details. They're not too concerned about with, with who it was that gave sight. They just want to know how, how did he do this? How did this happen? But first, they're, they're not sure this is really the guy they, they know is the beggar who was blind from birth. So they argue about that a little bit. They, they think it's him. Some do. And, but such a cure, such an amazing cure as this was so astounding, they could hardly believe it was really the man. And so they argued about it a little bit. They're arguing about it. Meanwhile, he's going like, no, 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 it's me, it's me. I was there when I was born blind. I know I couldn't see, and now I can see, right? And they believe him. But now they want to know how. How were your eyes open? they got to have some details. So once they're convinced They're more concerned with how their neighbor's sight was restored rather than who it was that restored it. I mean, we would look at that and we say, that seems kind of foolish. Why waste time asking how when you probably have some things that that this man could heal too? Or you probably know some people to take and have him heal them also. Don't dilly-dally trying to find out how. Go and find out who this was. But no, they don't want to know who it was at first. They want to know how it was. And that same distraction with the details I think we saw in the disciples also. Remember when they came and, and maybe Jesus pointed to the man because it seems that Jesus saw him first according to verse 1. And the, what do the disciples do? They don't have anything to say about helping the man who's born blind. They have a theological question. So they're kind of distracted by the details too. They're thinking about the sin issue rather than the fact that this man is born blind. He has to beg. In those days, there wasn't much for a blind person to do to provide for himself other than sit at the, the gate somewhere and beg in front of people that had some means. So the disciples were thinking about the sin issue. The people were thinking about how this happened, how the sight was restored. But now his sight has been restored and look at his answer to his neighbor's questions. Verse 11, he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. I do not know. So his answer kind of tells us something about him. He doesn't, He doesn't have spiritual sight yet. 
Do you recognize that here in his answer? It starts out with these words, the man called Jesus. He's not, he's not seeing Jesus for who he truly is. He didn't know really, truly who Jesus was, and he didn't expect these people to know him either. He just says, the man. Now, later in this chapter, and if you've read chapter 9, you know later in this chapter, we're going to see this man come to full understanding of who Jesus is and be saved. But, but until then, Jesus is just the man called Jesus. So he doesn't have spiritual sight yet. He has physical sight, which he's never had. And eventually these people ask where the man is. And, and he says, I, I don't know where he is. For one thing, I didn't get a look at him because I was blind and couldn't see him. And, and I, so I couldn't pick him out of the crowd. But I don't know where he is. I just went and did what he told me to do. Details, right? Details. They're all concerned about the details than, than with Jesus, the light giver, the light of the world. More concerned with with how this happened, more concerned with this man's sin than where his parents sin, with the fact that he needs sight. Do you, you know that we could be doing the same thing? You realize that even those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, who come to church faithfully and listen carefully to the preaching and open the Bibles for ourselves and read the truths of Scriptures, do you realize that we could, we could be careless at the same time and, and, and look for all the details and miss the most important truths that God intends to drive home in our hearts that He wants us to obey today? We, we can do that, right? We get distracted by the details. Sometimes we read the Bible or we listen to a sermon and we get caught up on the details rather than on the the spiritual truth that God is driving home to our hearts. Such as, I've got a few questions I thought of them this week so you wouldn't have to. Why did Jesus use spittle? Why did he use spit? Why make mud from the ground to use on the man's eyes? Did he really need to do that? We know he didn't need to do that, right? Why did Jesus send the man to the pool called Siloam? I mean, what, what's the deal with that? Did Jesus need to do those things in order to heal him? Was he deficient in something at that time that he, you know, had to have the mud and had to have the, I mean, we could get distracted by that, right? Was there something special about the mud? Maybe, maybe there was something curative in the mud and, and we should go find that mud probably. And well, you know, see how we could get distracted? Was there something special about the pool, right? And all the time, all the time we're missing the point, right? That Jesus is the sight giver, the spiritual sight giver. Jesus is the light of the world. And as God's followers, time is short. Time is limited, not only for you and me, but for those who need to hear the message. Their time is limited. And all the while, we're missing the details I mean, we're, we're paying attention to details and we're missing the thing that we need to do, the thing that we need to obey, the thing that we need to trust in God over. We need that spiritual truth to change our hearts and sometimes we, we see all the details and we get bogged down trying to answer a bunch of questions when really we need to take a step of obedience. In this case, so many details, so many questions when the bottom line is that Jesus heals. Listen, Jesus heals however he wishes, right? If you know the word, you know that's true. Jesus healed another man who was blind, and he didn't use mud, right? He did use spittle, but he didn't use mud. And there were other people he healed from blindness, and he just touched them. So I think the point there is just, 
Let's get this all aside. Jesus does whatever he wants. Okay, He heals however he wants. He will not be constrained by one method. And I think that's helpful for us because if he he did the same thing every time, what do you think we would do? (laughs) We would try to figure out how we could do that too. Let's see, he did this, he did that. We. Jesus heals however he wishes, but how easy it is for us to get caught up in those details, right? We get caught up in reading too much into the how Jesus worked this miracle or any other. And instead, we should be focusing on the why. Why message, right? There's a message here for us. And and he answered the disciples. He said this you know, this isn't about sin in this man's life. This isn't about sin in his parents' life. Were they sinners? Yes. That's not the point. God says, or Jesus says, God in human flesh, that what's happening in this man's life is going to be so that, so that people will see the works of God, the hand of God, and will look to Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the bottom line. Jesus healed however he wished, and we ought not get caught up in that. Jesus says it's not a sin issue necessarily in this point, but it's so that the works of God might be displayed in him and shown in him. Oh, the details, they can bog us down. They can also be an excuse, can't they? We can get caught up in the details, and we kind of like put off obedience. Well, I'm kind of busy doing a Bible study here, you know. I'm really trying to find out what all this stuff means, and that's good. That's commendable, and he, and we should read. And God's people should be intelligent and be and be studiers of God's word and readers of godly uh, godly books and good literature that helps us shape biblical thinking. And so we should be equipped and we should be studiers of God's word. But we can get so caught up in the study that we miss the obedience part. See, the neighbors of this man, they were all distracted by those details. All the people who inquired of him, distracted with how this could happen, rather than who it was to heal him. Who is this man? Jesus. Yes, Jesus had worked a a wonderful miracle of sight for the blind man. But his most important work is not that of giving physical sight, is it? Jesus' most important work is not in... Raising Lazarus from the dead by speaking, right? Another way Jesus worked miracles. The most important part is that he, he raises you and me from spiritual death to new life in himself, right? The most important part is that Jesus saves sinners when we put our faith in him. He gives sight to spiritually blind souls. Because he is the light of the world. And as we continue here in chapter 9, we're going to find this man looking for Jesus. And more important than being healed of physical blindness, he's going to be healed of the spiritual blindness. He puts his faith in Jesus. And so I say today, let's learn to look to Jesus for light. Let's learn to look for Jesus for life that only comes through faith in him. Let's not get distracted by the details. Let's give ourselves fully to obeying His Word and giving Him the glory as He changes us by His power, by His work in us. Let's bow our heads together. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, oh, how thankful we are 
As we gather together this morning to have these truths, as we hold your word in our hands, what a blessing it is. I pray that we would never, that we would never take for granted the fact that we have the word of God that we hold in our hands that we can understand as we read. But God, I pray that you would help us to never get so caught up in the details of studying your truth that we, that we fail to obey. That we fail to look to Jesus, the one who gives light, the one who gives life. That we fail to truly put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we fail to truly obey Him with everything that we have so that we might bring Him glory and honor. So that others might see Christ living in us through the power of the Spirit by the power of the Word. Lord, we're thankful for the details. We're thankful for the wisdom Your Word holds. But God, I pray, please help us to not make excuses for not obeying You for not seeking You out. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know You as Lord and Savior as they hear the truth of the Gospel. God, I pray, help them to not make excuses for for not listening, for not hearing, for not obeying Your truth. God, I pray, help us each one to humble ourselves before You and take steps of obedience. Just like this man went and followed Jesus' instruction and came back seeing. Oh God, that we would go to Jesus and come back seeing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.